This is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast that... Yeah, you would do if you had nothing better to do. That's right. That's our our thing, right? Such as it is. Well, we can always think of another one since we're getting close to our one-year anniversary. Yes, we are. And what number is this one? It's 36. (gasps) So it's not like when we get to the one-year anniversary, we're not going to have 52 because we don't come out exactly every week. We might have 50, though. Then we can celebrate 50. And And we're not going to have 50 because that means we'd have to do 14 (laughs) in the next three weeks. I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, so, but our one-year anniversary will be fun. We have a guest star, Khabibi. Khabibi the cat. Because we're at my house today. And she's sitting with us. It's a beautiful fall day. She likes to help us. Yeah, quite helpful. Before we get into today's topic, we have an update. Did you have an update? Yes, I do. (laughs) On episode three, back in December, we did Ayla Reynolds, the missing Waterville, Maine toddler. Who's still missing. Yes, and we had one of our rare guest appearances by Ben McCann, yeah. the excellent former reporter, now photographer. He's a wonderful photographer. He is. He's very good. I can always tell his photos when they're in the press yeah. room, just like I can with Bob Bucati, yes. the AP photographer. But Ayla... Reynolds was 20 months old when she disappeared from her father's home in Waterville in December 2011. Her mother, Trista Reynolds, had her declared dead, and the judge ruled on that September 26th. And she did that so that she can file a wrongful death suit against Justin DiPietro, Ayla's father. He and his sister and girlfriend were in the house when Ayla disappeared. His story is... He put her to bed on Friday night, and when he got up on Saturday morning, she was, she was gone. gone. They did what they call the most extensive search in Maine history. Although it seems like every time they do something, it's the most extensive search or the most extensive investigation. And they found some blood in the basement where Justin, his girlfriend, and the kids slept. I'm not sure where. The, there were three kids in the house all and it's a Toddlers little. It's a infants. little house. It's a little tiny, tiny it's house. It's not. Uh, it's probably like yeah, less than a Eight. thousand. And it's not the type of house that if someone had broken in and stolen a. Ch- well, the three children were sleeping in the same room, supposedly. It's know? a long story, but basically, he, his girlfriend, and sister maintained somebody must have abducted her. His mother. It's his mother's house. She wasn't home. The night it happened, he hasn't spoken since Ayla was declared dead. Last week, as we record this, his mother and sister both say they still think she was abducted and she's alive somewhere, which police have said since right after it happened doesn't pass this quote-unquote straight face test. And they have said that they believe she's dead. Police have. Yes, police. Yes. And Justin has since moved to California, according to the... The aching in his heart. Yeah. That's from a song. I know it was. I said that once to this guy I worked with in... New Hampshire. He was going to California. I said, are you going with an Aiken in your heart? And what I didn't realize is he was going to visit a girl he had met on the internet oh, and it was yeah. going to work out. And he got all offended because I guess he's not a Led Zeppelin oh, fan. But we digress. Anyway, so sorry. Justin was served in California, but he denied... They it. attempted to serve him. They attempted to serve him. The guy who answered the door matched the photo that Trista's attorney had given... Trista, the mother's attorney, had given them to serve but he said he wasn't Justin and he you know maybe he just wants to be left alone so that's where it stands that's where it stands we'll let you know what happens and if you want to know more you can listen to episode three and thank you for that update 
<laughs> Why are you laughing at me? I don't know. Me? I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing because we have a cat licking her. Yes, but it, but we can talk about the cat for an hour and a half, or you but can. She's so cute. Yeah, she is. But or you can get to your thing. Okay. Well, do you know what time of year it is? Fall. Yes, it's fall, and I thought this would be a good time for my presentation because this is the time of year when the very last stragglers who are hiking the Appalachian Trail stumble into Maine. And you know I'm interested. To finish the hike by climbing Mount Katahdin. And if by the time the show is online, there are any still coming, because they were, if there are any of them still coming, they probably would not be allowed to finish their hike because they close Mount Katahdin, usually around October 15th because of bad weather. So you have to get in there if you're doing... I'm going to go into some of the Appalachian Trail ins and outs. Not that I know anything because I hate being outside and I know I know a lot about it, but I'll try to restrain myself. Yeah, please restrain yourself. I will. But I will say... I have read books about it. I, I just don't want... And now I am an expert because I've read 10 million articles about it. And But I'm sure you're going to say that Mount Katahdin is in Baxter State Park. I actually didn't have that in my book. The Baxter State Park authorities usually close Mount Katahdin um, around the mid-October because they don't want people climbing it. The weather gets bad. It gets snowy and stuff up there sometimes. Mm-hmm. It does because and it's they don't close. want people fucking stuck up there who it's are close idiots. to six thousand feet high, and it's one of the. I know that isn't big if you live in out in the Rockies or something, but it's one of the higher mountains east of the Mississippi. Yes. I'm going to tell a little bit about the Appalachian Trail for our listeners who are not from the eastern U.S. or are outdoor enthusiasts, or for the many who do not live in the United States. Because oh, we do, we have, do a have a lot of those. And they might not know about the trail. I'm going to call it either the trail or the AT. The AT, yes. And I got these facts mostly from a National Geographic documentary about the Appalachian Trail that I watched on YouTube, but it is also on Netflix. And I would not recommend reading many of the comments because there's a lot of really stupid... Emily, YouTube people have got to be the stupidest commentators they are. online. They are. I never read YouTube comments. Well, I, for some but reason. I also want to say is more of an Appalachian Trail enthusiast than you were until you did this I'm not report. an enthusiast now. I just know more oh, about okay. it. The Appalachian Trail itself has an excellent website yes, that they do. has maps yes. of each state. Yes, they do. It's intriguing, but I hate being outside. So I know you do. Well, I have a bit allergies. Even eating outside. Don't like, you know what? I don't like air blowing on me. I know it's weird, but I don't. I also got information from everywhere for this background There's on a the lot. Appalachian yeah. Trail. The Appalachian Trail is the longest marked trail in the United States and one of the longest in the world, stretching about 2,189 miles or 3,523 kilometers from Springer Mountain in Georgia, northeast to Mount Katahdin in Maine. The trail goes through 14 states, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. And the part in Maine is about 200 miles long. I know people think, oh, I'm in Maine, I'm almost done. And it's considered some of the most rugged terrain of the trail. There are four sections to the trail. The Southern Mountains, the Virginia Highlands, <laughs> the Mid-Atlantic Lowlands, and New England. The hikers who tackle the whole trail are called thru-hikers. And the reason I'm saying all this is because when I tell my stories, these, these terms are going to come up. Yes, thank you. And it helps put you in context. It does. There are also section hikers and people who just hike a few days or do short walks. Some people just go on if they live near it. I've M- done that. Millions of people use the trail yearly, but only about 2,000 set out to be thru-hikers. Most thru-hikers start on Springer Mountain in Georgia and hike north instead of starting at Katahdin and going south. 
Apparently, it's an easier journey until you get to Maine. Maine is the most grueling part of the trail. But for me, there's something to be said about getting the worst over with first. Yes. I would think. But I think a lot of people give up because well, they, one reason so, it's hard. They do. And one reason people start in Georgia is because you can start in March. Yeah, and, and if you can't you, in Maine. Yeah. And you can't in Maine. Yeah, you can't. So that you have more time yes. if you go north than if you go south. Yeah. Because you can't get get to the top of Katahdin till but June But I was or thinking so. in spring, or, but if you go later, well, anyway. Yeah, I understand that. In any case, only about 1,000 people have ever finished the through-hike north to south. Wow. Are you serious? Yep. Since the 1930s, when the trail was completed, at least 18,000 people have completed the hike. So the vast majority are northbound hikers. They will usually start the journey in April or even a bit earlier and finish around September. The trailhead on Springer Mountain is about 10 miles from an access road, but volunteers will drive people up to the beginning in four-wheel drive vehicles. Which seems kind of cheating, but I guess... Well, well it's not part of the trail until you I get to the... I know, but come on. It's just like when you get to the end on Katahdin, you then have a seven-mile hike Ugh, down. I know. So, as I said, on average, 2,000 people try to do a through-hike per year, but of those 2,000, only an average of 500 actually make it. 15% of people give up in Georgia after... <laughs> uh, the numbers of people hiking the trail have increased dramatically over the past decades. If you go by the number of 2,000 milers, as the through hikers are called when they finish, Mm. when they successfully complete the trail, you can see the surge of people since the 1980s. In the 1930s, only five people completed the trail. That was the decade of the 30s, so I'm going by decades. So during the 30s, only five people completed the trail. The decade of the 60s, only 37 did. Compare that to the 1980s, when 1,430 did, and the 2010s ended with 6,342, 2,000 miles. So every year it goes up. There's tons of people. Yeah, you can probably credit the internet for a lot of that. Yeah. Not just through hikers, but millions of people hike some portion of the AT every year. There are thousands of volunteers in each state who maintain the trail, and they are concerned about the number of users, and they're trying to get people to either use different routes or sometimes go on side routes and stuff. 99% of the trail has been rerouted or rebuilt since the original trail was completed in 1937. The founder, if you will, of the AT was Benton McKay, a newspaper editor and former forester. He liked the outdoors and felt city dwellers might like it too. Mm-hmm. In 1921, he proposed the idea of a trail so people could get away from the city and spend time in nature. And did you know that two-thirds of the American public lives within one-day drive of the trail? I did not know that. But I didn't. I don't know what that means, really. Like, do they mean 24 hours? I would assume like eight-hour drive is what they say. That's what the National Park Service says, but Mm -hmm. I don't really know what he means. But McKay originally wanted the trail to go from Mount Mitchell in North Carolina to Mount Washington in New Hampshire. After a commission was formed in 1925, they expanded it to Georgia and Maine, although it wasn't Springer Mountain at first. It was, I can't remember, one of the other mountains. It was finally completed as a continuous footpath in 1937. The first 2,000-miler was Myron Avery, who accomplished the hike while hacking out and marking the original trail. Mm -hmm. A lot of people had to mark the trail and hack it out. He and... McKay apparently had some falling out, but I wasn't going to get into all that. There are about 253 sided shelters along the trail. The oldest was built in 1934, and I'm going to mention some of the shelters in my presentation, so just keep in mind, and I also call them lean-tos. And there are other ones that are 
official ones, I think, but they're the ones that are maintained by the trail. Are, right. And they all have names, and they have little log books in them. Not surprisingly, there's a lot of wildlife on the trail. The biggest and scariest being bears, black mm-hmm. bears probably. The biggest danger on the trail, though, is Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. It's probably especially now. Yeah, I would think. I wonder if our use of pesticides is somehow... I'm sure it Because it seems like people get it more now than mm-hmm. they do. But I don't think anything could be more scary or dangerous than a homicidal weirdo. No, that's true. And there have been a few over the years. Despite the millions of people who have crossed paths <laughs> <laughs> yearly, murder is fairly uncommon. It is. When you think of the millions of people that are on that trail and I'm protected. You're not allowed to bring a gun. It says, I think the National Parks or whoever. That's true. They don't allow you to carry guns. But, you know, outlaws will always carry them. That's right. Which makes the 11 murders and several attempted murders stand out. I'm going to talk about these crimes mostly in chronological order. Some have been written about a lot more than others, but I will share what I was able to find out. Okay. And we'll talk more about after, but even in the earlier cases, the first murder was... In 1974. That we know of. But that's because not many people right. walked it. Even then, there's a camaraderie, almost like even if they don't know people, friendliness between hikers and stuff. Sometimes this has been a detriment to some of the victims. Sometimes it's helped catch the yeah. killer. And the logbooks, because they see names, because everybody has yes. their nicknames. Yeah, and they, they have their nicknames. So they know each other from just yes, reading they the logbooks. And we'll talk about that okay. as these cases go on. Before I start this one, I'd like to give a shout out to the Aiken Standard in South Carolina and the Daily Times News of Burlington, North Carolina. Yeah. For the information. And it's really tough to find stuff online on old stories. It is. I use newspaper.com. The first recorded murder victim on the AT was in May 1974. On Thursday, May 9th, 1974, 26-year-old Joel Polsom, his name is hard to say, Joel Polsom, of Hartsville, South Carolina, was hiking with a female companion, 18, and I couldn't find her named in any story, probably because she was a victim of sexual assault. Ah. Most likely. They don't say that in the stories, but I think she was. You'll see when I tell the story. In any case, they were going on a short hike, either a day hike or a few days, but not a through hike or a section hike or anything like that. They were going through the Chattahoochee National Forest in White County, Georgia. <laughs> what, you think Chattahoochee? No, I want the Alan Jackson dog. <laughs> Remember from our, I think it was our Phil Hartman one. And I accidentally downloaded it and it keeps playing when I when my I put on my iPhone on well, Bluetooth music. at least Alan music Jackson probably the, gets money every time. Every, yeah. They were going through the Chattahoochee National Forest in White County, Georgia, when they encountered Ralph Fox at the Low Gap Trail Shelter. Ralph Fox was a fugitive from Michigan, but I wasn't mm-hmm. able to find out what type of fugitive. Like, was he a escapee or was he a bail? It didn't right. even say what his crime was. It could was. have been a warrant or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know what his original crime was. Fox shot and killed Joel Polsom, then forced the young woman to hike with him to the highway, Ugh. where they caught a ride to Helen, Georgia. They stayed overnight in a hotel. So they hitchhiked? I think they hitchhiked. It yeah. says they caught a ride. That People hitchhike all the time. Yeah, no, no, but I'm just thinking she must have been... You'd love to know more about yes. that. 
I'm sure he intimidated her. Yes. Too. Yeah, no, I'm not victim blaming. The her. next day, they hitchhiked to Cornelia, where he caught a bus to Atlanta, and she made her way back to Columbia. So he let her go there. Yeah. Friday evening, she went to the police station and told the Columbia police what happened. Columbia police called Sheriff Frank Baker of White County, Georgia. Joel Polsom's body was found where his companion said it was, at the Low Gap Trail Shelter. His head was in a plastic bag, and he had been shot twice. Oh. And I really, really tried to find out what happened with Fox's trial and sentence and how he got caught and everything else, but I could find nothing about it. So I was very frustrated. Yeah, if you were a fugitive, you'd think you'd just want to lay low instead of killing somebody and then assaulting someone and letting her go. Yeah, you would think so, but, but you'll see that okay. their, their, their minds don't work like that. No, they don't. The next victim was less than a year later, and again, I gleaned this information from a bunch of newspaper accounts in North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Arizona on newspapers.com. Janice Ball was a 22-year-old graduate from the University of Wisconsin. She was originally from Green Bay. She received her nursing degree from the university in January 1975. In late February, she and a female friend started a through-hike in Georgia. So they started early. At some point... In February? Wow, yeah. Well, it was, you know... Yeah. They're from Wisconsin. I mean, it probably wasn't that cold. That's true. And I don't know what Springer Mountain's like. I think it's about 4,000 feet high. But I don't know, you know, what the conditions are like on it. You might be able to start if you're... if you don't mind the cold. Well, I read A Walk in the Woods, which I don't recommend, and he Ugh. started a march, and it was freezing rain and cold out. And yeah, stuff. but he's a wuss. He was, yeah. He's not from Wisconsin. No, he's not. Not that I've ever been to Wisconsin, but... So, in late February, again, she and a female friend started a through-hike in Georgia. At some point, Balza's friend was injured and returned to Wisconsin, but Balza decided to continue to mm-hmm. hike on her own. And this newspaper story I read said, she continued on the lonely trail by yeah, herself. yeah. So keep in mind, this was 1975. Yeah. By April 20th, she had gotten as far as the Van Deventer Shelter, which is near the border of North Carolina and Tennessee, near Watauga Lake. Ah, yeah, okay. I know. <laughs> well, I'm hoping that people from that area... No, good. Janice met Paul Bigley. Bigley. <laughs> that has a new <laughs> meaning nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> a tree surgeon from Tucson, Arizona, when they both stayed at the Van Deventer Shelter to get out of the rain. Mm. They spent the night in the shelter. It would almost be romantic if this weren't a murder story. But it wasn't clear to me if there were other hikers there. I doubt there were because, first of all, it was early in the hiking season. And it wasn't as crowded as it is today. There, right. It wasn't like there was, you know, people coming every two minutes. So they were probably by themselves. But I'm assuming that it was just they were both sleeping in the shelter. What Janice did not know was that Paul Bigley was on probation for aggravated assault in Arizona. Mm. He had been arrested in 1972 and was serving a five-year probation, which required him to have psychiatric care as an outpatient. I couldn't find any information about whether he was supposed to be out of state or what he was doing on the trail. You know, like, was he allowed to leave the state? I don't know. As Janice sat by the fire the morning of April 21st, Bigley snuck up behind her and struck her with a hatchet. The autopsy report estimated four or five blows to the head. Ah. He dragged her into the woods and covered her body with leaves and stuff. He took her backpack and he left. He later told police that he woke up on April 23rd and remembered the assault he committed in Arizona when he beat a woman and decided he better contact contact Carter County Authority. He told them he had killed someone and wanted to be picked up. Mm. I gotta be picked up. I I just killed somebody. (laughs) I shouldn't laugh. I know, the poor woman. He led deputies to her body near Iron Mountain. Well, at least he 
resolved it fairly well, quickly. Well, when he was taken into custody, he said he turned himself in before he killed another person. Well, that's good. On October 1975, Paul Bigley pled guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. The only other thing I read about him is that he died in prison, but I couldn't find okay. out much else. It's just hit or miss what you find from newspaper yes. articles. It's like most of them were after the fact or like during his trial, so they had a recap. Or Lots of accounts online say that he testified that he killed her because he wanted her backpack. But I tend to think it was much more complicated yeah, than that. So he would... took her backpack, and maybe he said that. Maybe they said, why'd you kill her? Did you want her backpack? And maybe he I... said, yeah, yeah I guess so. As we've talked about many times, it's always a slippery slope to say someone killed someone because blah, blah, blah. I know. Because there are so many stupid things that go into killing somebody. The third mm. murder was in 1981. And I got the information about this one. A lot of it was from the Washington Post. Oh, good. Since a lot of them seem to happen in the same area, not all, the Sentinel is an online news service from that area that was very helpful. and It seemed to compile newspaper articles from different area papers. So I, that was a good one, too. The next murder was 1981. And the Washington Post had a double part story about the murder of Randall Lee Smith, and this was in 2008, but it's online. The title was Trail of a Killer. Mm. And there's also a novel that's kind of based on his crimes called Murder on the Trail by Jess Carr, which I did not read. There's another book called The Trail that I read about a main, by a main oh. writer. Oh, I read that one. About too. a serial killer on the trail. It's a, just a fiction. And then there's also The Precipice by Paul Dworin that also ah. has a murder on the And then, as you trail. said, A Walk in the Woods, which I never saw. Where there are no murders. Yeah, sounds boring. And my then. upcoming third novel, which I won't plug. Anyways, we've, we've gone on. So, but you won't let me talk about it. You can talk about it at the end. Okay. This is a long haul here. Yes. In 1981, two social workers from Ellsworth, Maine, Laura oh. Susan Ramsey and Robert Mountford Jr., both 27, were hiking the trail to raise money and awareness for mental illness. They both worked as counselors at what is described in one news account as a home for emotionally disturbed adolescents in Ellsworth. Mountford was doing a through hike, and Ramsey was joining him for a few weeks. He had joined him in Virginia in early May, and he was doing a through hike south to north. They befriended a young woman who was also hiking the trail. She was going to go on ahead of them, but they agreed to meet near Perrysburg in a few days. And when they didn't show up, she became worried and contacted police and told them two hikers were missing. Robert's father, Robert Mountford Sr., said, quote, My father-in-law at the time said, Bobby's too good of a woodsman to get lost. Hmm. But like any good dad, he was worried and drove from Maine down to Virginia to help find his wow. son. The sheriff's department in Giles County questioned other hikers, and one told them the couple was seen with a, quote, strange-looking man near the Wapiti shelter. The two had been spotted May 19th at a country store called Trent's. That was the last time anyone reported seeing them. The deputy sheriff who was investigating, Tom Lawson, said someone told him that a guy was going around saying he knew what happened to the hikers. Lawson asked the name of the guy and was told Lion Randall. Lion as in... Like in the animal? No. L-Y-I-N apostrophe. Lion. Like lying. Like oh, lies. I get it. Like the kind of nickname Donald Trump would give somebody. Lion yeah. Randall. He figured this Lion Randall was just some weirdo looking for attention and ignored it. As investigators talked to more people on the trail, they heard again that the couple was seen with a strange, quote, eerie man... Eerie. Eerie. Somebody said he was acting eerie. Mm, that's they, a weird use of that I word. know. Well, you know, they're hikers, not 
wordsmiths. Mm -hmm. They got to the Wapiti shelter May 30th. They looked around and didn't see much until Lawson looked more closely at the floorboards and noticed that it looked like something had run between the boards. He stuck his knife between them and realized it was blood, which later tested to be Robert Mountford's. The investigators fanned out in the woods around the shelter and found a mound of leaves underneath with Susan Ramsey in her Mm. sleeping bag. It was later determined that she had been hit on the head with a piece of iron and stabbed repeatedly with a long nail and a knife. Defensive wounds on her hands showed that she had fought him off. Mm. Although rape was strongly suspected, it could not be proven due to the condition of her body. Laura Susan Ramsey was called Susu by her family. It was from Michigan. According to her obituary, she was also an artist. Mm. The next day, a cadaver dog found Mountford a few yards from the shelter, buried in his sleeping bag. He had been shot in the head. Mm. So it sounds like similar to that other one where he killed the guy. The first one. Right. Then grabbed the girl. Assaulted the woman and killed her. Yes. It seems to be. You'll see there's a lot of double ones. And probably because people are usually with a partner when they're hiking. Especially if you're a woman. It it is striking how many are double ones. As a woman, if I were going to hike, go on a long hike, I wouldn't go by myself. But there are a lot that do. I know there are. And it's just, a lot of it is because when you go hiking, if you fall yeah. and, and hurt your ankle or something yeah. and you're by yourself. there's no one there. On that National Geographic special, they show a woman, she was doing just a section hike. She was from Europe. <laughs> Europe. <laughs> Not in Europe. Yeah. I think she was from Sweden. But she, when she visits other countries, she likes to do stuff that's not touristy, I guess. Mm. She was just doing a section hike, and I think it was the Virginia Highlands she was doing, and she was by herself. Right. Well, but there's, I think some of the, there's a lot of people, and most of them are fine. But That's what I was going to say. I think on the Appalachian too. Trail, people figure, well, if I get hurt on the trail, someone's going to come, come along. along. And we'll talk about that later. Yes. They searched the area for clues and found Susan's camera, but unfortunately the film had been removed. Mm. They found her backpack, and in it was a book she'd been reading, Mount Olive by Lawrence Durrell. Oh. Which I've never read, and yeah. Mm. There were bloody fingerprints on the book, and one of them belonged to a man named Randall Lee Smith, who was also age 27. He had worked at the Norfolk shipyards and had to be fingerprinted for the job. Mm. So his fingerprints were on file. Randall Lee Smith lived with his mother in Perrysburg, a small town of less than 3,000 residents. She worked at the laundry room at Giles Memorial Hospital. No one in town knew who Randall's father was or knew any of anyone else ever living in the small house. Smith was not well-liked, did not have friends growing up, and earned the nickname Lion Randall because he constantly lied. <laughs> he spent a lot of time alone walking up and down the Appalachian Trail because it ran right near his home. Ah. So he used to just go out and walk it. The deputy searched the home he shared with his mother and found bloody jeans and some of the dead hiker's belongings. Mm. They also found a note in Smith's handwriting saying he had been kidnapped by two people and he was going to be killed. Mm. The investigators were not fooled. No, especially when you leave it in your own... And you're called Lion Randall. There was no sign of Randall Lee Smith, and some investigators wondered if he had committed suicide. In late June, Deputy Sheriff Tom Lawson took a break from the case by taking a family vacation to Myrtle Beach, Mm. which is in South Carolina, for those of you who don't know. While he was in Myrtle Beach, the Giles County Sheriff's Department got a call from the Myrtle Beach police asking for him. Mm. They had picked someone up they thought might be Randall Lee Smith. Luckily, Lawson was already in Myrtle Beach. Tom Lawson was from Giles County. He went to Myrtle Beach for vacation, and the Myrtle 
Beach police called Giles oh, wow. County looking for him. Wow. And they're like, oh, he's in Myrtle Beach. So the Myrtle Beach cops came around and got him at his vacation place so he could come down to the station and check out the guy who claimed to have amnesia. <laughs> Lawson saw him and knew it was his man. Yeah. But the guy kept insisting he couldn't remember who he was. Although, couldn't they have just fingerprinted and some like your finger? Whatever. Uh, yeah. He was covered in bug bites and had been in the woods for a while. The cops told him the bites were very serious and he needed immediate treatment. He could suffer a serious illness as a result of infection. And he was like, oh. Mm-hmm. And they told him he needed to sign a medical release so they could get him treatment. They put a consent form in front of him and he signed Randall Lee Smith to it. <laughs> I know, duh. <laughs> <laughs> So Smith ended up pleading guilty on two counts of second-degree murder. He got 30 years in prison. Robert Mountford Sr. did not have sympathy for him, but he seemed to have some empathy. He didn't want Smith to get the death penalty, but he also didn't want him to get out of prison ever. The families agreed to the plea bargain, but the community was pissed off. Mm. The hiking community. Yes. The courthouse was picketed by hikers. (laughs) And... His father, Robert Mumford Sr., was a Episcopalian priest. I don't know if he was at the time, but later when this article was written, they talked to him and he was... The prosecutor said the reason he did the plea agreement, he was worried about the outcome of the trial because there didn't seem to be a motive. Mm. And, like, a fucking weirdo who wants to rape a girl seems like a good enough motive to me. I know. I mean, come on. And you don't need, you don't need one motive to... Although the jury's like... But, oh, yeah, well. they do, but... I think part of it was, I'll talk about it later, but I think part of it was the killer was not an outsider to the community. I'm not saying the community was against people, but I just was thinking about like once when someone got shot by a hunter, which is a totally different thing in Maine, and they, there was a lot of victim blaming. I think that some of the people that live around the trail might be like, well, what are they, you know, walking the trail for? That type of thing. But, you know, whatever. Right. But Randall's story is not over. Mm. He went to prison. Randall proved to be a model prisoner. Oh, that's always good. For so them. he was paroled, even though he got a 30-year sentence, he was paroled in 1996 after serving only 15 years in prison. Wow. And after getting out of prison, Smith moved back in with his mother and worked odd jobs and went around town lying. And although reclusive, he did like to walk the trail and talk to hikers. Mm. Doesn't anyone see a problem with that? I know, I know. Like, he fucking killed two people on yeah. the trail, and yet he likes to go walking on the trail, and he talks to hikers. His mother died in 2000. She left him enough money to live until March of 2008, and the money seemed to run out. His water got shut off at his house. So he left the house with his dog, Bo, and fishing gear and went into the woods. As the mail piled up, it was clear he was gone, and some people worried something may have happened to him out in the woods. His picture was put up as missing around town and at Trent's General Store, where, if Mm -hmm. you recall, he had been seen years before with the couple that he killed. On May 2008, Scott Johnston, 37, and Sean Farmer, 33, went up to Brushy Mountain to fish, as they had done together for years. Scott Johnston saw Smith first. Smith was wearing a camouflage jacket and looked gaunt. So this was in May. He left in March. Smith was wearing a camouflage jacket. Wow, I'm surprised they saw him. <laughs> and looked gaunt and had a severely malnourished dog with him. Aww, Scott the said dog. the dog's belly was distended and you could see his ribs. Aww. Randall Smith told Johnston he didn't think there were any fish as he hadn't caught any. 
Johnston showed him the fish he'd caught, gave some to Smith because he felt bad for him. Mm. Smith thanked him and asked if he was camping nearby. Johnston said yes, he was waiting for a friend and pointed in the direction of his campsite. What a coincidence! Smith's site was just beyond theirs. Oh, wow. He said maybe he'd stop there on his way back from fishing and say hi to the yeah. two guys. And oh, the two fishermen's site was only half a mile from the Wapiti shelter. Oh. Where Smith had killed his other yeah. He liked to kind of stay in the same area. Yeah, he liked to revisit his past glory. Later that day, while Johnston was out collecting wood, Sean Farmer was at their campsite setting up his tent. Smith approached and said he had already met Scott. He said his name was, quote, Ricky Williams. Mm. And apparently they talked about a football player named yes, Ricky Williams one, yeah. that they, they didn't like, or oh. Smith didn't like. So he wasn't happy he shared his name. Oh. Which he nice really didn't, because he was fucking lying. Yeah. Ricky stuck around for dinner. They invited him, they felt bad for him. And the dog got some fish, too, luckily. Good, thank God. Ricky told the other two men that he had gone to Virginia Tech and wrote papers for NASA. Mm. NASA. I'm sorry, not NASA. Not <laughs> like the the island. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he did. They knew he was full of shit but felt bad. Johnston said he figured he was an alcoholic who had been kicked out of the house or something. And they wondered if he was ever going to leave since it was now getting dark and they thought that he would not make it back to his campsite, which right. he didn't really have. Right. So finally, uh, Ricky got up and said, come on, boy, to the dog. Then he walked behind Farmer, pulled out a twenty-two handgun, and shot him in the temple. He shot Johnston in the neck. He turned back to Farmer and shot him in the chest. Wow. Johnston ran towards the woods, and Smith shot at him and hit him in the back of the neck. Oh. Farmer made it to his truck as Johnston hid in the woods. Smith fired at the truck, but he was out of bullets. So he was reloading, and Farmer pulled his truck into the road and stopped, and Johnston ran out of the woods and got in. Wow. Johnston had to, this. You're going to love this part. Okay, good, good. Johnston had to stick his finger <laughs> into the wound in his neck because it was the only way to stop the bleeding. Wow. Farmer was dizzy with blood loss, but he was the one driving. And they were driving down a mountain road with drop-offs on one side. That Oh, wow. No cell reception. The hospital was 30 miles away, but oh. they were like, this is from the Washington Post article. And Sean Farmer's like, I don't know how I don't know how I made it. I know. Wow. Um, they found a house with lights on and banged on the door. The woman and her son called an ambulance and then Scott Johnston's mother. I don't know why, but Well maybe he said, Call my mom, time. call my mom. When the ambulance came, the police came as well. The cop wanted them to describe the shooter. The father of the homeowner, so he was a, there was a grandfather, mother, right. and son, knew about Randall Smith and knew his past. Mm. He knew he was missing. I'm glad somebody did. And told his grandson to run down to Trent's store and get the flyer that was put up there. So he's a smart-thinking yeah. grandfather. Well, he probably wasn't that old. He's probably yeah. like in his 60s. The kid did, and he had to get the homeowner out of bed to do it because the store was closed. He banged on the door, said it was an emergency. He brought the flyer back to the house, and both the victims identified Smith as their attacker. Right. Uh. Smith had stolen Johnston's truck and was driving about eight miles from Perrysburg when a state trooper recognized the truck and gave chase. Smith crashed the truck and flipped over. Smith spent a couple days in the hospital, the same hospital his victims were in, mm. with police guards, and then went straight to jail. What about the dog? We'll come to that. Okay. Don't worry. Right. He told the cops it was self-defense. 
<laughs> he died May 10th in his cell. One of his neighbors was like, they took him out of the hospital too early, which maybe they did. He, yeah. died, he died of natural causes. He didn't yeah. kill himself. They don't well, know why. Well, he probably wasn't in great shape. He might have died from complications. How old was he? He was 54. Okay, he wasn't okay. that old. But he, there were no signs of foul play, but they thought he probably died maybe as a result of the accident. Right. You know, he could have had some kind of uh, head injury, you know, how brain And also, he'd been out in the woods for months. Oh, God, who knows? You know, he probably wasn't in great shape. Surprisingly, there were people at his funeral, about a dozen family members, and Bo, his dog, was uh-huh. at the funeral. He was. They said he was scratching the dirt. Aww. He survived it all. The private service was not announced until after the burial. Carl Vest, who works at the funeral home and held the service, said a lot of people were angry with Randall. They said they could have helped him if he had money problems, but he never did ask. He just closed up the house and went up into the mountains and shot those two boys. Sad. <laughs> so sad. Well, you know, maybe that's what he wanted to do because he was nuts. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he was buried next to his mother, and mm-hmm. Bo the dog, who was at the service, was adopted. Oh, good. In an article in the Roanoke Times after Smith's death, several neighbors expressed sadness at his passing. His neighbor said he was a good neighbor who had a hard life. He did have a hard life, but come on, you don't have to go kill That's people. That's right. I mean, like those two guys. I mean... Like, what the fuck? They gave you dinner and you shoot them? I know. They were nice to him. Okay. His neighbor, Sherman Smith, no relation, said, quote, He loved that dog and that dog loved him. Mm. Old Bo was beside him all the time. Randall Lee Smith's neighbors, the Whitakers, adopted the dog and said Smith had always been a good neighbor. Mm -hmm. I was frankly surprised at the amount of sympathy for him, but like I said before, it's a small, insulated town, and maybe they resent the hikers walking by They may. He's not killing people in the town, although those guys he shot... Yeah, they're from the area. In fact, the woman that answered the door had been, like a friend of hers had dated one of the guys. That's one of the reasons they knew that they were someone from around there. But yeah, it's crazy. So the next trail murder was in 1988. And some say this doesn't count because it wasn't strictly on the trail. Uh, Well, we'll count it. But I'm including it. Yeah. Because that's the way I roll. Two women were shot, Claudia Brenner and Rebecca White. Claudia survived, but Rebecca did not. And I got a lot of this account from an interview with BBC World Service that I found online with Claudia. It was conducted about two years ago with BBC journalist Joe Fidgen. I'm very happy this interview was out there because most accounts of this murder online are stupid. And all of the short blurbs I read said that they were having sex when he shot them, which is very simplistic and sensationalistic, and I don't even know if that's actually what happened so she doesn't say it claudia wrote a book called eight bullets which i didn't read i think it's out of print but it can be found online you can probably find it it sounds like an interesting book claudia and rebecca met as graduate students at virginia tech they had a long distance relationship According to the interview with her, the interviewer's like, you had a long, kind of a long-distance relationship, didn't you? And she's like, yes, but she didn't explain how because right. she said they were students at Virginia Tech. So, But I think Claudia had finished school and moved to Ithaca, New York, and Rebecca was still in school, and it was her last semester. She was graduating. They met for a weekend of camping and hiking on the trail. They met at Michu State Forest in Pennsylvania. And if I mispronounce it, I'm sorry. That's how we'd pronounce it in Maine, though. So. And set up camp at an established campsite that had a fire pit and a lean-to. They had a tent, so they didn't use the lean-to. And they looked around. They were alone. There was nobody mm-hmm. there. It was the second weekend of May. Rebecca was graduating and figuring out what she was going to do next. And they wanted to spend some quality time together and enjoy the woods. That's and Rebecca nice. liked hiking and, and nature. 
Mm. I'm like, I like this the way Rebecca. you say nature like it's this. It's because <laughs> I, I, I like being it. outside. Well, but no, but you already said you didn't theory, like being outside. Yeah, I get what you're saying. They spent the night, and the next morning, Rebecca went out to use the outhouse. Claudia said she was, quote, not fully dressed. Another account I read said that she was only wearing shoes. So whatever, but in any case, she did not have all her clothes well, on. Well, in her defense, I want to say, too, when you're camping and you have to go to the bathroom at night. No, you don't it, was the sit- mor- it was in the morning. Oh, okay. But still, no, you don't, she didn't think anyone was there. Right. Maybe she was just a, didn't care. Like, some people go right. around You know, some, it's a pain in the ass to get dressed and undressed when you're yeah. camping. Yeah, no, night. I mean, no, no. we're not, I'm not right. judging her. Yeah, I know you're not. She realized, though, on her way, that someone was in the lean-to. It was Stephen Roy Carr. He asked her if she had any cigarettes, and she said no and returned to the tent. And she's naked, so she's like, where would I have cigarettes? Yeah, I'm I know. Joking. They're up my butt. Mm-hmm. No. She said no and returned to the tent where she told Claudia someone else was at the site. According to Claudia, they weren't afraid of him, just a bit uncomfortable. Rebecca, obviously, because she ran into somebody uh, running into a stranger while you're not fully clothed. Yes. Kind of, you know, you're like, let's get out here so and then both of them were a bit annoyed that their solitude was broken they just didn't want somebody else around so they they decided to move on they packed their stuff and got back on the trail and i read another account that said that that car said to them see you later when they left but Brenner does not say that in her interview, and I think that was just an embellishment that's been be. added over time. And also, and I'm taking her account as the as the accurate right, one. Right, and also here. sometimes you say see you later, not see you later. But I'll just, see you later. Right. I'm sure. But sometimes you just say see you later to people, even when you know you're and not. It's from just what a way to she say, said, it appeared that right. they didn't even talk to him okay. or see him again. Yeah. Then, but whatever. And I think her maybe her book's more detailed, but I think that's something she probably. Maybe would I'll have try said. to find a copy. I saw it online, but I didn't. Maybe the library has. The two women were on the trail, and they decided they might take a side trail. They stopped to look at a map. Again, this other account I read said they were kissing, but she doesn't say that in her interview. And maybe they kissed. I don't know. But and how would they know? I don't know. Like she doesn't say we stopped and started making out. They were looking at a map. Stephen Carr came up from behind them on the trail and asked if they were lost and they said no we're not lost and he had a 22 caliber rifle but it was just on his shoulder like he was carrying it and they assumed he was a hunter so Mm -hmm. they weren't afraid of him at that point they were uncomfortable to like run into him again although it wasn't really hunting season I know, but maybe they don't know. Yeah, that's true. Some, yeah, but no, it depends on what you're hunting because, like, I know in Maine there are different seasons for different animals. A small caliber rifle could have been right. who knows, you mm-hmm. know, like a squirrel season or something. Who the fuck knows? But they were uncomfortable, but they weren't afraid of him. They were just like, ugh, that guy again. So they went down their side trail, and he went on in his direction. And although they did look behind to check he wasn't following them, eventually they put him out of their minds. They found a remote campsite by a gurgling stream. Uh. It had been a somewhat steep climb to get there, but the site was lovely. It was late afternoon, and they lay by the stream, and as Claudia says, they made out, and they were having fun, so I don't know. Suddenly, Claudia's right arm above her elbow exploded in her words, and blood was everywhere. She didn't realize at first she'd been shot, but Rebecca did. Mm Mm-hmm. They had little time to react as Claudia was shot three more times, and Rebecca told her to get down on the ground, so she did, and she was shot again in the top of her head. Rebecca told Claudia to run behind a tree, and she herself ran. As Rebecca ran, she was shot twice in the back of her neck and in her back. They made it behind the tree and were both still alive. Wow. Claudia kept saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Rebecca said, stop the bleeding. Claudia went 
to their packs, which were a ways away, and got some towels. And she said she didn't even think about whether or not she was in danger. She just went to get the packs. Claudia had also been shot in the neck. So she wrapped the towel around her neck, and she wrapped the towel around Rebecca's neck, too. Rebecca said her back hurt, but Claudia couldn't see any blood. Claudia said they had to get out of there, and she got their shoes. And Rebecca's vision was failing, which is a sign of bleeding to death, I guess. She, mm. Claudia said she found out later, you start graying out. So Rebecca was unable to walk. Claudia had to make the wrenching decision to leave Rebecca there so she could go seek help for both of them. And Rebecca was still talking and everything. Right. So even though Claudia Brenner had five bullets in her... She was able to hike miles to the road. She walked about three or four miles, but it was a rough climb. It wasn't just like a walk. Right. A car came but didn't stop. She was on like some kind of access road. She saw houses and thought about breaking into them. They seemed to be like uninhabited, so maybe they were summer, right. you know, like hunting lodges or something. She was unable to turn her head because of her neck wound, oh. and she was afraid that Carr was in the woods, and she kept thinking she saw him. She was, like, really paranoid. And right. I don't blame her. She had a flashlight with her, and she stopped the car by flashing her flashlight. A car with two young kids is what she called them, so I don't know, boys, girls, picked her up and brought her to the closest small town, which was Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, and to a public safety building that housed both police and fire station. Claudia was brought to the hospital while police searched for Rebecca and the gunman. Claudia had to go straight into surgery, and she asked the nurse to please not tell her what happened to Rebecca, whether she was alive or dead, until after the surgery. Everyone in her family and friends were on the way. They called her family, so I think she was from New York State. Yeah. Rebecca, I looked up their obituaries, they said she was from Manhattan, mm-hmm. and they said Claudia was from Ithaca. That wasn't her obituary. Right. She's not dead. But the next day, one of her friends told her about Rebecca's death. Claudia was in the hospital for 11 days. She gave an FBI artist a description for a composite sketch. And the police already had five strong suspects. One of them was Stephen Carr. And the other three did not match the description, so... They narrowed it it's down It's scary to that there's that many strong suspects that quickly after the I shooting. know. Well, we have these potential guys who would be likely to shoot two women in the woods, you know. Carr had served time in Florida and was known to law enforcement, but they don't say how. Oh, I hate that. He apparently lived in the woods. Oh, okay. So maybe people have complained about him before. In one account I read, Carr was found hiding in a Mennonite community mm. because they did not read newspapers, and I put really... <laughs> They are allowed to read newspapers. Mennonites can drive. But this account said they do not read newspapers or watch TV. They didn't know he was a suspect in a murder. But one guy secretly watched TV and saw the composite on the news and called the police. I really, really wanted this. That sounds like an embellishment. I know. I wanted this to be true, but it was not. Yeah. However, the truth about how he was found is pretty good. This is according to the Sentinel, which I talked about earlier, a news outlet in that area. This article was written in 2013, 25 years after the murder of Rebecca White. On May 18th, Esther Weaver was doing some yard work along the banks of the Canoda Gwinnett Creek, and if I pronounce that wrong, let me know, in West Pennsboro Township in Pennsylvania. She saw a guy floating down the creek in a metal vat that's usually used for cement mixing. Mm. So I'm picturing like a rectangular tray that's yeah. about 12 inches deep. She called out to him and asked if he was okay, if he was afraid, and he's like, no, I'm fine, I can swim. He went a bit more downstream, then he tied his, quote, boat up. He approached Esther and asked her if she could give him some food. She was like, yeah, I don't know. She went to her husband, Chester, Esther and Chester, and told him to go talk to this scruffy-looking stranger. Chester went to the man who told Chester he was hiking in the woods when the weather got bad. It had been raining for a few days at this point. Since he had a backpack, Chester believed him. 
And even though a giant manhunt had been going on for days, Chester was unaware of it. He didn't read the news or watch TV. Mm. The manhunt used two helicopters, a Maryland police canine unit, and the horse unit from the State Police Academy in Hershey. Pennsylvania, where they make Hershey kids. Yes. So far, the only thing they had found was a blue-knit cap, 25 rounds of live ammunition, <laughs> two cigarette lighters, one knife, and eight spent twenty-two shell casings. Since Chester didn't partake in any kind of media, he knew nothing. Mm-hmm. But he was a church-going... It's just full of bad news. I know. He was a church-going Christian and saw that this guy needed some food and shelter. So he offered him a place to stay. Just like Jesus would have. Yes. That evening, the family went to church, except Chester, who stayed home with the guest, who didn't have clothes suitable for church. The family let him stay in a cot in the basement. The next day, the visitor said he would do chores on the farm, but his shoes were too tight. So Chester bought him a pair of shoes, and the stranger helped out with the farm work. At one point, Chester asked him if he was running from the law, but the answer was the same as before. He was just a hiker who got caught in bad weather. He didn't act nervous or anything, so he wasn't doubted. He never let on who he was. Mm. Of course, you know the stranger was Carr. Yes. He went to church with the family a few days after arriving, and someone from church recognized him and called the police. The police were skeptical at first. I think what they were skeptical about was that they didn't think that the the weavers would aid and abet a criminal. Yeah. I think they knew the weavers were like church-going people. Mm. And they're like, I don't think so. But the informant insisted that it was Carr. On the morning of Tuesday, May 24th, police surrounded the farm. An unmarked police unit had been watching the farm through binoculars, so they had seen Carr Mm. doing the chores and stuff. Esther and Chester left the farm that morning for a chiropractic appointment and met a roadblock. The police made them open their trunk, fearing that they were smuggling car off the property, because at this point they didn't know know, why he was there. Right. Police told the couple who he was, and the couple told him Carr was probably helping their son Nevin bring a bunch of cows... Yeah, that's what they call them, a bunch of cows. Not a, <laughs> a bunch of cows. A bunch of cows down an access road to another farm. They nabbed Carr when he was going to open the gate of the farm to let the cows through. Chester Weaver felt that Carr ended up at his house for a reason. Mm-hmm. The Weavers later visited Carr in jail, and Chester said this, quote, We told him we thought the Lord had stopped him. He may have gone out and killed again. Everything we get, we get from the Lord. He protects us. The Lord took care of us. Uh At his trial, Carr tried to justify his actions by saying that seeing two women being intimate with each other had enraged him so much he couldn't control his actions. His lame argument didn't work, and he was sentenced to life in prison. As of four years ago, he was still serving his sentence at Greatersburg State Prison Mm. in Pennsylvania. The next murder was over two years later in September of 1990. There's been a lot written online about this one. For some reason, it seems to have struck a chord with a lot of people. I got my info from several places, the Sentinel again, outside online, and Associated Press, to name a few. The victims were Molly LaRue and Jeffrey Logan Hood, ages 25 and 26, respectively. She was from Shaker Heights, Ohio, and he was from Signal Mountain, Tennessee. They were doing a through hike starting in Maine, which, as I said, is rare. Mm. They had met in Salina, Kansas, where they worked for an outward-bound type of organization run by a church that helped high-risk teens, so similar to Susan Ramsey and Robert Mountford. By the way, as I just said, several aspects of this case are very similar to the Ramsey-Mountford killings. It's just a weird coincidence, but it's... They both got laid off for six months and decided they both always wanted to hike the AT, so what better time? And one of my best sources for this story was an article from Outside Online magazine by Earl Swift. 
He wrote it in 2015 at the 20-year anniversary of the killings. I got a lot of information because of the 25-year anniversary. A lot of stuff was written. That's good. You know, pre-internet crimes are hard to find, and it's usually on the anniversaries that you can get information online. Swift himself, he's the author of that article, was also a southbound thru-hiker and left in mid-June of that year. Molly and Jeff had climbed Katahdin on June 4th. Swift followed their trail by reading their entries in the logs that were in each shelter. When people are thru-hikers, as they said, they pick trail names. Theirs were Nalgene, Molly was Nalgene, and Clevis. Well, you don't pick them, they get picked for you lots of times. They do, but these two pick their own. Okay. There wasn't anybody else there <laughs> when they started writing. Yeah. And one log entry, Nalgene wrote, if you are behind us, you will pass us, which is how Earl Swift ended up meeting the two future victims in Glencliff, New Hampshire. They visited with each other and hiked together for a while, but split up and he never saw them again, although he wrote to them and other people told him that they wrote back. He wrote to them in logs. He was ahead of them. Jeff did write in a log on September 5th, that he was ending his hike in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, which is kind of the halfway point and a few days south from where he was, and hoped to see Earl before he got off the trail, but he didn't make it. Jeff Hood and Molly LaRue were killed on September 13th. Two nights prior to that, they had spent the night at the Doyle Hotel in Duncannon, Pennsylvania. They called their families and said when they saw them again, they would have an announcement. The families assumed it was an engagement. Jeff was going to meet some of his family members at Harper's Ferry. Remember, he was from Tennessee. And his mom was going to bring him two pumpkin pies. That makes me sad because she... She never got to see him. The next day they met and had lunch with some relatives of Molly's, then hit the trail again. By that night, they had reached the Thelma Marks shelter. So this is September now? Yes. They're very slow hikers. That Earl Swift article mentioned they were enjoying the hike. They were very, very slow. That's why she said, if you're behind us, you'll pass us. Because they hiked, but they also took side trips. They took photographs they they were like enjoying maybe it stayed overnight yeah they weren't places. they weren't necessarily trying to finish it right that's why they, they i were, think they probably were maybe going to finish it later that's why they were going to yeah. stop at harper's ferry because that's a halfway part so maybe they thought that they would like right. stop there and then do it again yeah they were very meandery by that night they had reached the thelma march shelter it's estimated their time of death was sometime between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. the following morning. The Thelma Marks shelter is in Pennsylvania. The couple had encountered Paul David Cruz. He shot Jeff in the chest and raped Molly LaRue, then stabbed her and slit her throat. Well, so this is the third one where they've shot the guy and mm-hmm. then raped and then stabbed yeah, the woman. And it's different guys, too, yeah. every time. The couple was found in the Thelma Marks lean-to by Biff and Cindy Bowen, hikers who knew Nalgene and Clevis from their entries in the logs and were hoping to finally meet up with them. Oh, well, they and, did. And Biff they? and Cindy Bowen, they had a couple trail name, uh. like, and I can't remember what it was. One of them was a kindergarten teacher. They seemed like nice people. Like I said before, there's a lot of camaraderie. People meet up, they hike on their own, but then they meet up again and, and they write to each other in the logs. So unfortunately, when they finally met up with them, it was the evening of September 13th. Jeff lay in his sleeping bag in the corner dead and Molly was face down in a pool of blood, her wrist bound behind her back. They hurried back to Duncannon and called the state police. It took them an hour to get back to mm, Duncannon yeah. to hike. This is pre-cell phone people. Well, and listening. then a lot of places on the trail, cell phones don't work anyway. Yeah. 
That's true. It took the police three hours to get up to the shelter. One of them was like, we had our dress shoes on. Those yeah. detectives. They were ill-equipped to hike. It took another four hours to get equipment up to the site to get evidence. They used two all-terrain t- vehicles, and they had to hack out the woods to get it, which is similar to... In your book, didn't they do that, or was it someone else's book where they had to hack a trail to get evidence? It wasn't in my book, no. Oh. But thanks for asking. Possibly. No, there was some book I read where it happened in the woods, and they and they had to hack. It might have been... It's not ringing a bell with me, but I mean... When Glenda Hood of Signal Mountain, Tennessee, heard the news on the radio the next morning, the morning of September 14th, that two hikers had been found dead, she wasn't sure it could be her son because he always told her that he would be careful on the trail. Hmm. But still, she had a feeling and she called Molly's parents and told them the news. Because they were in back in Ohio. They didn't. Right. Molly's dad, Jim, burst into tears. He Aww. said he just knew. He told his wife, Connie, I think this is going to be the longest day of our lives. The killer of the couple was caught because a fellow hiker who recognized Jeff's backpack called police. The people hiking the AT, as I said, especially through hikers, form bonds. Even if it's just that people knew them from their entries and the journals are only hiked together a few days or a few hours, the two were well regarded. And once they got killed, a lot of people were talking about them, a lot of hikers. And after they were killed, other hikers were not only scared, but maybe a bit angry that their sanctuary had been shattered. Mm. It only took a few days to catch the killer, Paul David Cruz. Cruz was 38. He had been working on a tobacco farm, but abruptly left one day and took a Greyhound bus north. When he worked, he was hardworking, but was absent a lot and didn't talk much about himself. No one knew anything about him. Right. He was, in fact, a suspect in a 1986 Florida murder case, a strong suspect. Wow. On July 3rd of that year, a woman he met at a bar in Bartow, offered him a ride home. Her body was later found in an abandoned railroad bed with no clothes on, her throat slit. Cruz drove her car to his brother's house in Polkville, North Carolina, where he abandoned it. His brother drove him out to the country, and he took off. Police found the car, the knife, and his bloody clothing in the trunk, but he was long gone. Well, his brother... Thanks, bro. Yeah. Cruz had an unhappy childhood, adopted at nine, ran away a lot growing up in North Carolina. He had served in the Marines, been married twice. In Indiana, his second wife divorced him in 1977 when he held a knife to her throat. Mm. His former girlfriend is partially paralyzed from the time he shot her in the head. Wow. Apparently, he was a nice guy until he drank (laughs) and did drugs. Until he wasn't. Which he unfortunately did a lot. When are people going to recognize that those, all those incidents of domestic violence are just key to something bigger that's going to happen. I know. He always resented his biological father giving him and his seven siblings up for adoption. And apparently he still had relationships with his biological family, too. He suffered severe depression and attempted suicide several times. His high school coach said of him, quote, he was a little ornery youngin'. (laughs) (laughs) I had to that quote. But that's what you want on a high school football team. He ended up in Florida where he was charged with killing Clemmy Jewel Arnold, the woman from the bar. He was charged on July 7th, 1986, my 21st birthday. Oh, wow. He had been drifting around since then. Back in 1990, at the time of the LaRue Hood murders, the AT fell on 16 miles of paved highway in that part of Pennsylvania. The Appalachian Trail Conservancy had been trying to acquire woods along this part of the trail to reroute it, and I think they have now. Yeah. But at the time, it was still on a paved road. On September 11, 1990, Karen Lutz, who worked for the ATC, was surveying part of this paved area. So this was September 11th, remember, two days before the murder. She saw a scruffy man in a flannel shirt carrying two red jeans. 
gym bags with Marlboro logo on them. You know, the Marlboro cigarette logo, that cowboy. She didn't think he was a hiker, but rather a hitchhiker or something. And she didn't think much of it. Two hours later, she saw him again in another part of the trail, because she was, like I said, she was surveying. They double-checked the blazes, repaint the blazes, all that stuff. And the blazes, if you don't know what I'm talking about, are the white marks on the trees and whatever. All trails that are official trails have those. Yes, they do. That's how you don't get lost. Theoretically. She saw him again, so she thought he must be a hiker, because there he is again. Maybe she was surveying as part of the effort to get the trail off the road. Yeah, it could be that, too. But she was driving a car when she saw him the second time. I think she was standing there when she saw him the first time, or walking. But he was strange and gave her the creeps. Mm. Later, she said she was haunted for years by the guilt she felt, because she had sensed a, quote, evil aura coming off him. She said later she knew that sounded, quote, wacko, but that's how she felt. Yeah. She just had a feeling. And but you can't call the police and say, I saw a guy that looked weird. And he, and he had gave an me evil, a creepy evil feeling. Aura. They'll and be like, yeah. They say, yeah, lady. She did help the police later. One of the clues they found in the Thelma Mark shelter was a red gym bag. They found another one in the Darlington shelter, which was the next one down the trail south of it. And so she was able to describe him and the fact that he had these two gym bags, which was a clue. After killing the couple and stealing Jeff's pack, Cruz hiked north to Duncannon, then hitched a ride south into the next county, where he got back on the trail and posed as a thru-hiker. Cruz was caught by federal park rangers as he walked across a bridge spanning the Potomac and Harper's Ferry. Cruz did talk to other hikers on the trail after the murder and seemed to have stolen the coupled story along with Jeff's backpack. He was telling people he was a through hiker, that he started in Maine and all stuff like that. This was found out during the investigation when authorities were questioning other hikers. This led to speculation that he had spoken to the couple or had some interaction with them before attacking them. Because mm. otherwise, how would he have known all that right. stuff? And like I said, that's kind of the downfalls. I mean, in their case, it helped catch him. Because everyone knew who they were. People recognized Jeff's right. pack. And they saw this guy with it. And they're like, hey, that's Jeff's pack. That's the freaking guy. But, like, at the same time, if you see somebody and you assume they're another hiker, you're going to be friendly to them and yes. strike up a conversation with them. Cruz's trial started on May 15, 1991. It was a strong case against him. He was arrested with Jeff Hood's pack, watch, and boots. He was carrying both murder weapons, and DNA evidence connected him to Molly LaRue's rape. He was convicted after 49 minutes of deliberation and sentenced to death by lethal injection. I don't even know why he had a trial. I mean, like, you think he would have just been like, okay, but he's a fucking criminal. Well, lots of people who are obviously obviously guilty plead not guilty because you never know what's going to happen. If you plead not guilty, if you plead guilty, you know what's going to happen. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court automatically reviews all death penalty cases. From the time of his conviction until 2006, Paul David Cruz had appealed his conviction three times to the state Supreme Court, twice to the U.S. District Court, and once to the U.S. Third Circuit Court. On December 26, 2006, Perry County prosecutors decided to stop fighting his appeals, and a plea agreement was reached in which Cruz would serve two life sentences without parole. Jim LaRue, Molly's father, remembers her every time he sees a beautiful sunset because she was so artistic. He said, there's not a day that goes by that I don't see a spectacular sunset and think, ah, Molly's at work. Mm. That makes me sad. The next murders were also double murders. Oh, wow. I got a lot of my information about this one from the Fredericksburg Freelance Star. On June 1st, 1996, at 8.30 p.m., 
Park rangers found the bodies of Lolly Winans and Julie Williams at their campsite in the Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. Virginia. Julianne Williams was from St. Cloud, Minnesota, and Lolly Winans was from Unity, Maine. Oh, wow. Julie's father had reported them missing several days earlier. They were only going on a five-day hike, but the last confirmed sighting of them and Lolly's golden retriever, Taj, was on May 24. Julie was supposed to start a job in Lake Champlain, Vermont, on June 1st, the day her body was found. The woman's wrists were tied and their throats were slit. There was has only been one person ever charged, Daryl David Rice. Rice had been arrested on July 1997 for an attempted abduction of a woman in Shenandoah National Park, a crime for which he served 10 years in prison. In 2002, he was indicted on capital murder charges for the murders of Winans and Williams, but there was no forensic evidence against him, and the charges were dropped. And what was the year they were killed again? 1996. Okay, yeah. In addition, a forensic test was unable to rule out another person, serial killer Mark Evanitz, who killed three young women from 19 1996 to 1997 in the Fredericksburg area. There were three head hairs on the scene of the murder and they couldn't rule out Evanitz but they didn't match Daryl Rice. Evanitz killed himself in 2002 when it became apparent he was going to be arrested. What a dick. Julie Williams' father, 20 years after the killing, still felt that Rice was the person who killed his daughter, though the hairs found at the scene did not match him, but it is unsolved, but the FBI does not consider it cold. They're still working mm. on it. I was not able to find anything out about Taj, the dog. Mm. One story said he may have helped the rangers find the body, but that was the only information mm. I found, and I was very upset by it. But it was very, very difficult to find information because there was a site that had kind of a links to articles but a lot of the articles weren't there anymore the pages weren't found so oh, it was because this was before newspapers started putting stuff on the internet because it, it was kind 1996 of almost, it was right, that and, area right and it up. almost hasn't been long ago enough for it to be yeah they like, had the 20 year anniversary i mean but they there weren't many i almost stories wonder I found. if i almost wonder it and obviously this is after the fact going to the main state library if like the bangor daily news or something yeah. because she's from unity yeah. would have had unless i mean if she was a student there yeah, unity not College, from maine right and a lot of people thought that was a hate crime as well because there were a couple but well i know. remember when it happened a lot of people thinking that comparing it to the one in uh, 88 Rebecca White yeah. in 88 you know, oh, you know, two more lesbians killed. But on you the don't trail. know. I mean, any two women. I know. Are- the next murder was five years later in 2001. This time it was in New England. Oh, wow. This is the first New England Pinkham one. Pinkham Notch, New Hampshire, to wow. be exact. And I'll have to thank the Union Leader and the Berlin Daily Sun for their articles and on I this And I was one. working at the Union Leader at this time. I just want to throw that yes, out there. you were. But I didn't write the story. This case is also unsolved. It's funny how the newer cases are unsolved, and I think it's because there's just so many more people on the trail. Yeah. It's harder to solve it. Even in the 90s, there were not as many people as right. the 2000s. It's like, you know. I also think the New England, like Pinkham Notch, Erie yeah. White Mountains. Yes. It's not. There's just, it's it's more remote. It's harder to hike. And this was in November. Is this Louise Chaput? Yes. Okay. On November 15th, 2001, Louise Chaput, I'm assuming Chaput? Yeah. A 52-year-old clinical psychologist from Sherbrooke, Quebec, came across the border in Vermont and drove down to Pinkham Notch, New Hampshire for a few days of hiking and enjoying nature. Friends said it was not uncommon for her to spend a few days hiking on her own. Planning on climbing Mount Washington, which she had done several times before, and I was like, November 15th, Mount Washington, the freaking cold and snowy, I would think. 
Yes. But she had done it before, so, you know. I don't know if she was married or divorced, but at the time of her death, she had two daughters ages 10 and 19. She had reservations at the Appalachian Mountain Club Lodge, but never checked in. She did ask a clerk at the visitor center if there was a good short hike she could go on before dinner. This was about 3 p.m., and the clerk directed her to Lost Pond Trail, which is across Route 16 from the center. And they're pretty sure it was her. The clerk said he spoke to a woman with a French-Canadian accent. I mean, apparently, you know, it's November. Not many people are there. It was They were pretty clear it's her. That was the last time anyone but her killer saw her alive. She was reported missing by family members on November 19th. Her car was parked at the head of the Deratissima Trail on November 20th. The stories were confusing, but it seems like that the trail was part of a network she could have planned a short circuit through. There's like a bunch of trails, so. Her sleeping bag, backpack, some clothes, and some personal items were missing from the car. Her body was found on November 21st by the Glen Boulder Trail, which connects to the Deratissima Trail. She had been killed by multiple stab wounds. And I think it's possible, and I coincidentally was talking about this recently with my friend Lorna Calhoun. Who wrote the story. Who covered the North Country for the Union Leader at the time. And I think it's possible that she wasn't there to hike, like, up Mount Washington, but she was there to do day hikes and stuff. Yeah. And it's the kind of thing where, over the course of time, the story kind of gets condensed to yeah you know that's true because the story i read was from the 10 year anniversary i think that the story i read was from the 10 year anniversary i couldn't find one from 2001 her murder is still unsolved she was described as a free-spirited generous to a fault and outgoing police speculate she encountered a stranger i wondered if it was some kind of drifter who was living in the woods and needed her supplies yes that's what i wonder sometimes or sometimes there are strangers in the woods who just randomly fucking kill people for no good reason. You that know? makes me really want to go out hiking. And now we're at the last one. I got some information from the Richmond Times Dispatch and some from True Crime Diary. Also, a thank you to C.R. Burns 1990 on WordPress, who had a good article on this one. On August 12th, 2011, the body of Scott Lilly, age 30, from Indiana, was found by a group of hikers in the George Washington National Forest, specifically near the Cow Camp Gap (laughs) in the Mount Pleasant Special Management Area. This is in Amherst County, Virginia. The hikers who found him immediately reported the crime, and the FBI took on the investigation since Scott's body was found on federal land. And this is the difference now that people have cell phones. That one was in an area that was probably signal and They were able to call someone right away. There was little, if any, evidence. He was apparently suffocated to death, or in the medical examiner's words, asphyxia by suffocation. His backpack, hiking shoes, and other gear were missing. Scott Lilly had started his hike in Maryland and was going south to Springer Mountain, Georgia. He was a Civil War buff, and the purpose of his hike was to find himself to visit Civil War sites (laughs) in the process. His trail name was Stonewall. Mm, after the Civil War. The last time anyone remembered seeing him was at the end of July when he climbed the Priest, a mountain with about a 4,000 feet elevation. And that's about 17 and a half miles north of where his body was found. And he was hiking south from Maryland, remember. He was found August 12th. His sister Allison and minister mentor Craig Clapper spoke to local TV news about Scott. Clapper had hiked the trail for 20 years and never had encountered trouble, and he was the one who introduced Scott to the Appalachian Trail. Allison said, 
He was a 30-year-old man who was living out a dream by traveling the Appalachian Trail and visiting Civil War battlefields. He was just really excited about it, and I told him I loved him and be careful, and he was trying to make us proud. There are a lot of snarky comments online about Scott Lilly that his pack was too heavy for the hike, and since he was a smoker, that could have contributed to his death. The heat plus heavy pack plus smoking, I guess, I don't really know. There are a lot of rumors and bitchiness, but not a lot of evidence, and I think this one will probably remain unsolved as well. And I think it's interesting that the more recent ones, I had a harder time finding information, and they're they're unsolved. Right. I mean, it's almost like it's not as big of a story now because so many things happen. Or that we know about so many more things. But, you know, as I've said, I don't, I'm not an outdoorsy person. I do like to go walking, but not hiking. Even on any trail that's designated for walkers, there's sketchy people hanging around. Like, you know, a lot of places have those trails that go along railroad tracks. Yes. I used to walk on one. I used to live up in Hollowell, Maine, and there's one. A nice one. I stopped going on the trail. I used to, I'd prefer to go on streets and stuff. There were always weird people. And parts of the trail, it's not remote by any means, but there are secluded parts that don't feel safe when you see some weirdo standing around and like there were certain people I saw there all the time like just hanging out they weren't walking they were just hanging around and it's just weird it depends on where you are because like you were saying you know there have been none in Maine there was Louise Chaput in New Hampshire and that's it is because it's harder to get oh, it's to. It's very hard. And that's the thing. A lot of these ones that I talked about in the more southern regions were near roads. The trail does run right near roads through some towns and right by towns, populated areas. If you're somebody who wants to randomly kill someone, you're not going to go to the Appalachian no. Trail of Maine no. to do it because you're going to sit around waiting <laughs> and it's going to be hard to get out of there unless, you know, but on the other hand, if you just like kind of live in the woods yeah. and are a sicko, but even that, if you were someone living in the woods, the reason you would kill somebody would be for their equipment. Right. If you needed something or if you're really hungry. I don't think you're going to be a serial killer living way up in but the woods. But even then you know, you'd I... find a way to steal it, I think, or something. Maybe. Rather than kill somebody. Depends on... When I go hiking on trails by myself, I started doing this. It's kind of... I think it's just because we're so in you know, read so many true crime books. I've always read a lot of true crime and stuff. Now I put my phone, I put the voice recorder on my phone ah, on. I don't even So that if that. somebody attacks me, I can like at least say stuff that would give police an idea of who it was or something. Who are you, you tall, bearded <laughs> no. man? Well, actually, maybe it's because I'm a writer. I was thinking of, so how do I do this so the person doesn't know and doesn't like look for my phone or something, know what I'm doing? I was thinking, so I'd say, you know, my boyfriend Alan is out here too. I don't know why I chose the name Alan. And Alan he's, Jackson. Were, he's ahead of me. Maybe that's why that song's hotter than a Randomly <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I would start yelling, Alan, Alan, there's somebody attacking me and he's wearing jeans and a mustache and blah, blah, blah. And either the guy would run away or if he said, well, fucking Alan isn't coming, he wouldn't necessarily think I was saying it for my phone. But I do get nervous sometimes if I'm out hiking alone in the woods. Like when I was last week, I was vacationing in Unity, actually. Actually, Burnham, a town next to Unity, on Unity Pond. And I went for some hikes. One I went on, which is the new Hills to the Sea Trail, which goes from Unity all the way to Belfast. I didn't feel at all concerned on that. And it went through the Unity College campus. And so I kind of went there and went back. But then there was another one that supposedly had an old abandoned mill on it that I didn't see. 
But even <laughs> though the town is around you and you can even hear traffic and stuff, I'm like, this is the kind of place where it's near, you know, the college is the half a mile away and it's near enough to people, so, and there's a farm over there in this that somebody could wander on. I feel safer in more remote areas of Maine than I do on one that's But like we were populated. talking about earlier, in that way you're safer, but when you're alone and you are in a remote area, there's more of a chance if you injure yourself, yes. you could be in a really bad position or, if you fell and broke your leg and weren't able to walk. Well, and that's what they thought, and I don't want to go into a big thing about Geraldine Largay because I'm going to, even though it wasn't a crime, I'm going to do her at Ooh. some point. But she's the woman who got lost hiking the AT in Maine, a couple of years ago, she went off the trail. And I hate this when I say in the story, to use the bathroom, because there isn't a bathroom <laughs> off the trail. She went to take a piss. She made a lot of mistakes, including thinking she could use her cell phone and stuff. And it, she panicked and got lost, and they found her two, They found her remains a couple of years later. Yes, but there's a lot to that. When that happened, a lot of stuff, you know, and I worked for papers that covered it, it was in that territory, that, for instance, 98% of the people who get lost or disappear on the Appalachian Trail are found. Yes. It's very unusual for someone to get lost because the trail's well-marked and most people pretty much stick to the trail. And it's very unusual for someone to get killed. Just the fact that you could go through the murders here yeah, in less than an hour, in a, a little more than an hour. That was over how many the, years? Since 1974. Years. It isn't unusual for people to die of heart attacks, of heart attacks or accidents or suicides. Or even. Right, and dehydration. Yeah. And uh, people who but aren't prepared. Still not, yeah. And and the, but like we were saying, now there's so many people. And also there are things, too, like one thing Geraldine Largate didn't do when she went on that last faithful trip to urinate or poop, whichever one it was. And apparently, from a, a friend of hers, said she she was nervous about go- fuck modesty though. It's like, I I know, but she was I in know. her sixties, and but her friend had been hiking with her, and there was a family emergency and had to leave. And, and that's Hampshire. what happened to what's her name. So she was up. by herself. She was a little anxious and panicky. A lot of hikers, when they go to the bathroom, leave their pack on the trail. So that people know that's where they went off the trail. And she didn't do that, and nobody knows why. But my guess is she didn't want somebody to know she was out there going to the bathroom. So she or got she lost. Or she was afraid that someone might take something. I, I think she was more concerned, just knowing all the well, reading yeah, I've yeah, done about yeah. her. And so when she got lost, nobody knew where she got lost. And then other hikers knew her or had seen her, but there was misinformation about where she might yes, have been. There so there was a lot of stuff like that. And part of it was, if it had been another state, she probably would have been found, but that's the most... But that's another thing I want to say about Maine. Right before you get to Baxter Park, where Katahdin is, you go through something called the 100 Mile Wilderness, and it's not called that because the terrain is really rough. It's not as rough as the train people have just gone through in the western Maine mountains. But all along the Appalachian Trail, you cross roads and stuff. And a lot of hikers, a lot of through hikers, spend nights in hotels sometimes and stuff along the trail. But the 100-mile wilderness is 100 miles where you don't cross roads. There are no civilized areas. And you're on your own. But she wasn't even there yet. So she was nervous about it because she'd had a lot of support. You know who I did want to 
talk about because her death was more mysterious is Jessie Hoover. She was in her early 50s and she was from Texas and had read years before a story about the Appalachian Trail that it, it had seemed very romantic to her and she talked frequently about how she'd love to go up to Maine and hike the Appalachian Trail. What did she do for... I, I don't know oh, okay. what she did. And she was kind of an outdoorsy person and stuff, but she wasn't a really in-shape hiker. She was about 5'10 and weighed 240 pounds. Hmm. Her husband died in November. And she was depressed and decided the following spring she was going to go hike the Appalachian Trail. And she took a bus from Texas to Bangor, Maine. Hmm. Or flew, I can't remember. But she, um, and called her sister from Bangor. And that's the last anybody heard of her. Aww. Bangor is about 90 minutes from Millinocket yeah. where you go to Ender Baxter Park. And she went to hike, and I don't know if it was at the entrance to the park or at the headquarters in Millinocket, I've read differing accounts, the Baxter headquarters, but they told her, no, you can't go hike Katahdin. First of all, it's May, and it's not, people shouldn't be hiking it yet. Yeah. And second of all, she was wearing sneakers and jeans and had a little backpack and was obviously out of shape. And wow. so they kind of sent her away, and the last place she was seen was at the entrance, the Baxter Park entrance to the 100 Mile Wilderness to go south on the trail, and she was never seen again and never found. And the speculation is she got lost in the woods, which you can do in Maine, Very and died, and nobody really saw her because it was May, and she was going south. Mm-hmm. And even just day hikers up there at that time of year, there aren't a whole lot because the weather isn't great. There's It's very buggy when it is warm out. And, but she was out of shape, she was ill-equipped, and she that was 1983, mm. and no trace of her Aww. has ever been found. And so there's some speculation she could have been killed or something, but nobody knows what happened yeah, to her. Oh, that's sad. It is it sad. makes you wonder what could have happened. Yeah, anything could have happened. And the funny thing is, when I was doing, a few years ago, I was doing a column on Maine's Unsolved Disappearances, and I went to the Maine State Library, which has all the newspaper accounts. And when she disappeared, there was like a little, like three or four paragraph story in the in the newspaper. And that was it. And the Bangor Daily News two years ago did a in-depth story, whatever happened to Jesse Hoover. But other than that, there's hardly That's been weird. anything about her. And it is weird because she's a person who disappeared. Disappeared with no trace. Yeah, yeah. But you know what else I think of whenever somebody says hiking the Appalachian Trail? You're naughty. Sanford. Yeah, Mark Sanford. Sanford, the governor of South Carolina. And now he's a senator. Because men can be forgiven for anything they do. He was having an affair with that woman from South America. Argentina. Argentina, But he told his wife he was off hiking the Appalachian Trail. Well, that's what he told everybody. He told his staff. No one could find him. him. And so for a while, hiking the Appalachian Trail was a euphemism for going off to have um, secret sex with people. People still joke about it. It's sad, though, that he was forgiven and was yeah. able to run again. But I was a total piece of shit. And his wife was... Uh, she, and they had four kids. She didn't, didn't forgive him very kids? easily, no. yes. Well, had. who could? But back to the Appalachian Trail, one thing is, you know, it sounds like, ooh, you know, there's these crazy killer guys, but that's just because it's you recounted. Rare. It's rare. But when yeah. you think of the amount of acreage 
and the amount of people on it, millions. even day hikers and stuff like there are that, millions and the here. fact that you can sit here and list how many people have been yeah. murdered, no, it it is a safe place. It's, it's much, very safe. It is a community. Most people are not even if people are asked just right. by their personality. There is still a bond. They consider themselves a community. Yes, and the people who are doing through hiking, especially right, are, and you know, as the tale of Geraldine Largay, you're in much more danger from mother nature yes, and being unprepared. And like I said, Lyme disease is And the, Lyme the, disease. But with her too, she she would text her husband and she she didn't like know how to use a compass. I know. And she didn't have a good one with her because she thought she could rely on your cell phone. And once you're in Maine, you can't rely on your cell phone. You can't rely on it for GPS. You can't rely on it for texting someone, which she was trying to do when she got lost. I know. They found all these texts on so her phone sad. to her husband Please, saying... Please, you're going to make I'm me sorry. cry. We can talk about it after. Oh, well, I know what I can mention that'll make you really happy. I have so many Appalachian things. My third mystery novel in the Bernie O'Day yes. mystery series, which I'm working on, is inspired by, it's not based on or anything, but inspired by, well, partially by Geraldine uh-huh. Largay, and then some other things that have happened up here. Yes. But the premise is a woman who was hiking, a thru-hiker on the trail, who's, and you didn't do the Appalachian Trail just so I could talk about this. No, but I, I look for any opportunity, yes. of course, well, to that's good. talk about my and, books. But and soon your book will be finished, so people can buy soon, it. Not soon, but it will be sometime. But in any case... She had these friends. She was retired. She had just retired from being a nurse, and she was in her 50s. And this is a fictitious person, yes, by the way. Yes, she's a fictitious people. person. Okay. And something happened, and she got lost in Maine. And she was about to die. She, There was no question she was going to die, and yet somebody murdered her hmm. in the remote. And hmm. why? Well, that's... Why? You have to read... Yeah, why, indeed. That's... Why bother? But, you know... Well... We'll find out as we read the book. That, in fact, it made it difficult for it to get solved because the people in charge of investigating were like, why would somebody murder her? It's supposed to come out next spring. Good. Spring? (laughs) Well. That was going to come out by Christmas. I have to. It's not even fucking finished Uh, yet. It has to be done. Actually, my publisher has a pretty quick turnaround. Okay. I have to have it done by the end of the year. All right. But it's not like I have it done one week and it comes out the next week. They have to do all the editing and uh, at least you get to read parts of it. Yes, and stuff. I do. You're my one. But it changes all the time. So. I know it does. So that was good. I liked that. Are we going to do our recommendations? Yeah. <laughs> so we went to see a movie last night. Again, I know yeah. we've been going a lot. We're going to make like... this a regular thing. I think. Yeah, that but one... I don't want to do it every week. No, we're not going to do it every week. week but okay. once in a while, I mean, gonna... I don't mind going to the movies every week, but I don't want to do a recommendation every week. Well, we do a recommendation every week. For a movie, I mean. Right. I don't want to do a movie review every That's week. That's true. But we went to see Battle of the Sexes. Yes, we did. And I was concerned because a lot of times I do not like when there's a fictional account, not a fictional, but a dramatic account of something that really happened that I was alive. Or right. And remember. for you younger folks, Battle of the Sexes in 1973, Billie Jean King, who was the top women's tennis player at the time, and we all loved her, played Bobby Riggs, who was a previous men's champion, yeah. and he was in his 50s, and he was at that point on the senior tennis circuit, and he was kind of a huckster. And he wasn't really that, well, we don't think he's that old. He's 54. And they ended up, and I won't go into how it all happened, you can go see the movie, but they ended up playing a tennis tournament dubbed 
the Battle of the Sexes, because at the time, the theory was, and, you know, actually there are people, even people I know personally who still believe this to this day, that any man can be any woman at any... And Bobby Riggs, he was, let me tell you, because I was curious about this, I didn't know, a 21-year-old amateur in 1939, Riggs won Wimbledon, the U.S. National Championships which is now the U.S. Open, and was a runner-up at the French Championships. He was the U.S. champion again in 41. He was a good player when he was young. He was, but it had been a long time ago. So on September 20th, 1973, they played in the Houston Astrodome, and it was televised nationally. It was huge. And it was a big fucking deal. And I was considered a quote-unquote woman's liber to the disdain. I used to get called that by in a disdainful way by yes. boys and, and people. And some girls. And some adults. And still feminist is now the new word that they um Yes, that, that they, they use with use, disdain. Yes, and they can kiss my ass. Yes, they, mine too, my feminist ass. But it, there was a lot at stake. I can remember being desperate for her yes, to win I that. Yes, I too. I wanted her to win. And my one issue with the movie, I thought the movie was pretty good. I thought it was a little shallow. She was, at the time, a closeted lesbian just coming in touch with her um, yes her husband's name was larry king but he's not the larry king on tv he's a much better looking nicer guy and i have no issue with the movie exploring that but there was one moment i don't want to spoil it that i felt like it all of a sudden it kind of turned around and made it about the gay part and to me that whole thing was it was about women not about it, it was about yeah. women and how they were empowered briefly and how they were treated and them taking it, it into their own hands and it was the beginning of the women's tennis association because they weren't getting they were just getting a fraction of the prize money from the yeah. tennis association that the men were getting and of course that argument still rages and i just had one it was somebody about how women don't deserve to get well people don't want to watch them yeah people don't want to watch women people aren't interested they said, well first they start with the argument of well they play fewer sets than men i said well look at baseball a pitcher only plays every five games and that doesn't determine that he gets less money than the That's people right. so then they turn it around and it ends up being women people don't want to watch women and i have to tell you watching women tennis serena williams give me yeah, a fucking break yeah, but, but it, even when we were young i used to we used to watch women's tennis there's to me there is no difference i know i don't there is none but i used to like watching it because it's a very fast competitive yes, sport whether it's women or men yes and i was into it because of all the personalities involved mm-hmm. and because it's so, so individual yeah you can see that the personalities and, and one thing too that intrigued me about it and i remembered this when i was watching the movie is it's one of the few sports where it's one person against one person yes. unless it's doubles and it's this very intimate thing yes, between those two people even though everybody's watching it and so it heightens the competition where i felt disappointed in the movie was that i felt like it was superficial as far as a lot of the sexism yeah that type of thing went on both parts on both the men's and the women's parts that it it didn't really depict how much people who weren't playing tennis how much was Everybody was. Every, you don't realize how important in people's lives TV was because nowadays everything is kind of diluted by all the other ways of information and media. But, I mean, you had like four or five channels if you were lucky. And that was a huge deal. I just remember I was in third grade and I had the same arguments, although we're eight-year-olds. So, yeah. But still, it was the same. So they were the parroting what their parents they were saying. Were. I was 12 at the time. You were 12, yeah. yeah. 
But I vividly remember watching it. And I, I remember vividly the, I remember her giving him the pig. I didn't watch the whole match because I was a it kid. It didn't last yeah, it's not like it lasted that long, but I remember just being just feeling desperate that she had to win. And one of the sadder things about it is that that was 43 years ago. Mm-hmm. 44. I, 44 years ago. And some of the th- things people said in the show that were there Wait, to illustrate the sexism are things you still hear today. People, well, the thing that I thought was interesting is that they obviously started filming this movie a couple of years ago. It wasn't like they just started la- this year. It was such an interesting... I don't know if I want to say it was an allegory or metaphor for the presidential race this year because oh, the same shit, people were saying the same type of thing. They showed people wearing t-shirts and they did wear them then that said male chauvinist pig on them right. because Bobby Riggs was a proud male chauvinist. He said, he although said we a know lot of his was, he was showmanship. He was making he was try, he was making money. He was a hustler. Yeah. I mean, and also one of the parallels that I thought of was it showed her once the match had been set and they were going to play each other, working her, her fucking ass, ass off. off and taking it very seriously and him clowning around like the thing where he was dressed as little Bo I Keith remember and that sheep. so well. So. And so he was like promoting it by being a clown and his clownishness was almost taken more seriously it than was. her being a serious woman. And she was looked Not upon unlike with derision. And laughed at. Yeah. A lot of it was just so, it brought up a lot of feelings in me watching it. Uh, triggers. Triggers. <laughs> but also it brought up a lot of memories. And I would love to see a good documentary, bit, similar to the one they did on OJ. I would love to see a this, documentary. In fact, when he... On he, her and this whole... Right. And him, I'd like to see one on her and him and the whole Battle of the Sexes, because I think that would be very yes. interesting. And he had be, beaten Margaret Court that May. He mm-hmm. wanted Billie Jean. She was the number one player, but she didn't want to do it. And he beat Margaret Court, and when we were watching the movie last night, I remembered how devastated I was and how much shit I got. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, it's funny, because in May... We lived in Ohio. That's right. And I was getting shit from totally different kids. And then in September, by then we had moved to Maine and lived in Maine. And I was getting the same fucking shit from the boys at school in Maine that I had gotten from the boys in Ohio. When he beat Margaret Court, that was in May of 1973, I had just become a newspaper carrier. And I was the first girl newspaper carrier, to my knowledge... In Dayton, Ohio, and I think I got the job because my dad worked for a newspaper, not the same one I delivered, but could pull some strings. And people were like, oh, are you sure you can do it? Do you think you can do it? And it's like, it's fucking delivering newspapers, you know? And I liked baseball, but couldn't play Little League. And so when he beat Margaret Court, it was devastating. It was absolutely because it just set any equality. I don't think people understand. I mean, girls... It was a couple of years ago when they were talking about the Olympics. Could it jumping. have been ski jumping? Yes. And it pissed me off yes. so bad. Because, well, just not enough women want to do it. or there aren't. So and you're I not ma- letting them do it at the early stages. Well, I made a post on Facebook about it because it pissed me off, even though I'm not a ski 
fan or anything like that. And, of course, the only people that liked my posts were women, first of all. Of course, men had these stupid generalizations. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? Or these stupid, like, justifications for, well, why they haven't had women because blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know what? I am so fucking sick of the first woman to do this or the first woman. I don't want my daughter to ever have to be second in anything. Like, why, why do we always have to wait for the men to do something yes. first, and then we're allowed to do yes. it? And why are we still at this? Then we have to fight to do it. You know, you go back to 1973, you know, when you're oh 12 my. years old, you're beginning to try to figure out what the rest of your life is going to be like. And to constantly be told, you can't do things that you like to do. You can't play baseball, unless it's a sandlot game with the other kids. Mm-hmm. You can't deliver newspapers. You can't be a crossing guard. Remember yes, that letter we yes. said about because I couldn't be a crossing guard because I was a girl. Now, all these things you can't do, and it's like, why not? I know. You know, why Why can't and I do And things are, whenever I see a story like, like this or anything from that time, like when you watch Mad Men or you read, like, The Good Girls Revolt. I mm-hmm. read the book. I didn't watch the stupid the book thing on TV. The book was really good. You do realize things have changed because there are things that would be appalling today, but at the same time you realize how little things well, have changed and, like and racism, it's depressing. Like racism and a lot of other things, the stuff that used to be blatant, has kind of gone underground, so it's coded and subtle, and the problem with that is, and while things have progressed a little, is that when it's subtle, people don't recognize it, particularly if it's not affecting them. Men don't recognize a lot of the microaggressions. They just deny it. But, for instance, here's an example as a woman writer. The majority of people, of traditionally published authors, are women. Yet, the majority of book reviewers... And those who those whose books are reviewed are men, hmm. like eighty something percent. Interesting. They had a study. Brown University did a study, and they did other studies. And this is the major reviewers. People may not realize this, but book reviews are the number one way to get your books read. Wow. If your book is reviewed in the New York Times Review of Books or yeah. the New Yorker or the Guardian or something, even I notice even like when the main Sunday Telegram reviews one of my books, it sells a lot of books relatively for me. But, and it's not like, oh, we're only going to hire men to review books. And I know everybody out there is thinking, well, I know a woman book reviewer or my newspaper is a woman. Yes, there are women who review books, but the major ones that have impact are largely male. And the books that are reviewed are largely by men. And a lot of the awards that are given are to Books written by well, men. I don't think there's this big conspiracy, oh, we're only going to let men do it. And, but I don't think it occurs to them to review women's no. books. The Boston Sunday Globe has this thing called Bibliophile where it interviews an author every week about what books that author is reading. And I started this obsessive thing. I may mention this before, <laughs> but a year or so ago, I started this obsessive thing of reading how many books the author mentions that are written by men huh. and how many are written by women. And when they do it at male author... It's uh, it's almost hugely like like four to one wow. male to male writers to female writers. So I'm like, so these guys are only influenced by or reading male writers. Yeah. And the female writers they mention are really famous ones: Doris Lessing and Joyce Carol yeah. Oates and people like that. When they interview a female, it's more a fifty-fifty. Thing. I have yet to read any author in that who names more female authors than male authors. And I notice male authors who write children's books or YA books mention more women That's authors than ones who write hmm. 
hmm. adult books. And, but I'm just saying, yeah, I know that's a big tangent about something most people don't care about, except for me, but it shows that a lot of the, and I bet there are people who would say, well, books by men are more interesting because they have more action, blah, blah, blah. But I know some kick-ass women thriller writers. Gail Lynn comes to mind. I know a lot of female writers who write books that men would like. I'm always, it always almost surprises me when men tell me they like my books because mine are very character-driven yeah. and stuff. But some, they do. But anything that's like a traditional male kind of area, you still hear the same shit that you heard in Battle of the Sexes. Yeah. Well, men are just more interesting. It's what they do, whatever it is, is just more interesting. Well, it's more interesting to the people who create the narrative. The media, the male-driven media and everything. Well, the just people movies, who are, too. I mean... Right, you're told this is more interesting. You're told, for instance, if you're a guy, you're not supposed to like, quote-unquote, chick flicks. Yeah. You know, you're told what to read, you're told what to be interested in, and you're told how to feel about things, which is part of the reason we had the presidential election we do, because people listen over and over to what they're told they're supposed to like or how they're supposed to feel. Like the girl in the class that's really, really smart girl or whatever, that people roll their eyes every time she answers a question, or she's blah, blah, blah. If it's a guy, it's more... I don't know. It's smart, smart boys in school are regarded much more positively yeah. than smart girls. Yeah. They're not... They're not, con- they're not know-it-alls. Yeah. yeah. No. You know, they're not They're not bossy. Right. It's the same thing everywhere you go. I mean, if you're if you're a woman and you if you talk too loud, you're yelling. Yeah, yeah. But and yet, look at Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Yeah, all they fucking do is yell. Yeah. And back to the movie. Well, There's some of the stuff in the movie that they, they had was real audio, like Howard Cosell saying, yes. "Well, she grew her hair out and took off her glasses. She could be in the movies." I mean, yeah. they said shit like, and no one said, "Hey, what the fuck?" Because people were just like, "Oh yeah, you know, that's what people." One thing I was reminded of watching the movie that nobody in the movie. Really really talk that much about what happened. I was also worried that when this was all going on, that he was clowning around and he was obviously kind of out of shape and stuff. So if he did lose, that people would say, well, look at that. He was, he's He's a middle-aged guy. He's out of shape. And he was clowning around, and he was wearing that stupid warm-up jacket for Sugar Daddy because they're a sponsor. And somebody in the movie did, one of the announcers said, well, he is a middle-aged yes. guy, you know. And I'm sure they really said, yeah, they said But that. yet, before the match, everybody thought he would win no matter what, because even an out-of-shape middle-aged guy can beat the best woman's tennis player in the world. But it also bothered me that I knew when she win, won, people would make excuses. I know, so it would have been nice if it had been... I don't know what Bobby Riggs was like when he was actually a player. Probably a mouthy star. asshole. But yeah, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connor, they can be assholes. Yeah. And it's like, oh, look at these bad boys. The women tennis players all had to be... Even someone like Martina Navratilova, just because she was confident and she was an out lesbian. Yes. People like, Ugh, I don't like her. Or even now, you've got the Williams sisters and you have the, the Well, the Williams sisters girl. have two, not only are they strong, confident women, but, but they're, they're black. black. Yeah. And there was during the U.S. Open, I think it was the U.S. Open, I get my tournaments mixed up, back when I was a sports editor, and it was July. I'm pretty sure it was like the 4th of July, and I think that's when yeah, the U.S. Yeah, that's the U.S. Open, yeah. Like, that she won, one of the Williams sisters won I don't know I if it, it was, was the tournament or this would have been back when I was, this was over, this was probably 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, 10 years no, ago, 20, I was 20 years say, yeah. ago. And on the front page of the pay, of the sports section, I had a big picture 
of her in this exultant joy, mm-hmm. throwing her head back for winning. And you should have seen... That was like the late 90s. Yeah, it was like 18 It was years after ago. email. Yeah. Ca- yes, was, it, was. it was. Because you should have seen the email. I emails. remember being online. Yeah. I got a couple even pointing out that... And Pete Sampras had won the same day. And I had another smaller picture of him because our layout was you had a big picture, like a big center, yeah. and then a smaller picture. And that on the 4th of July, how could I put a picture like that on the front? Of, and and nobody came out and said blatantly racist, but so many complaints that I had used a big picture of one of the Williams sisters, and it wasn't an action shot. She had her head thrown back. Yeah, she was like smiling. Yes, like, and a huge smile. And, I remember. Yep. And Pete Sampras deserved to be there, and it was the fourth. A couple brought up that it was the fourth of July, and they had to look at that on the front of those. Oh, and, and of course, this is Manchester, New Hampshire. Still, though. It just goes to show that, and granted, that was probably 20 years ago. I can't remember what year it was. I think it was. I think it was 99 or. Yeah, I was a sports editor from 95 to 2001, so it would have been in that. But people's attitude haven't changed a whole lot, I don't think, since Battle of the Sexes. And so you can find it kind of depressing. I thought the movie, I thought the acting was really good. Yes, it was. Emma um, Stone was very good. And Sarah Silverman played... Gladys. Was she their agent? Her she manager or agent or I something. Because her husband was her manager, so I thought she might be their agent. Or something. She helped... She helped form the... the and she was really good. Bill Pullman. Pullman in kind of a thankless role as Jack Kramer, that poster boy for sexism. But he was much better looking. The two, yes, the t- he I was. I had a problem uh, yeah. with that. I did have a, I had a problem with that, too. And they, I thought the two leads, I thought the two leads, Emma Stone and Steve Carell as Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs were both really, really Very good. Very good. And Natalie Morales, who played yes, Rosie Cassell, was good. There were some kind of thankless roles. And Bill's... Bill Pullman's son played Bobby Riggs's adult son. Yes. And did. I almost wondered why that guy, not the actor, but why that role was in the movie. Maybe to show more of his family life. And Elizabeth Shue was good. As she was very suffering. good. And, and very And 70s. that handsome blonde guy who played yes. Billie Jean's husband was good. But I felt like after that, the roles kind of dropped well, off. Well, all, the, all the ten, other tennis player gir- women, I shouldn't say girls. Were just interchangeable. There yeah. was one named Peaches. The, and they'd say who they were. The woman they who were real was people, Billie but Jean's, they didn't do anything. I mean, right. they were just there. The like, woman they didn't who, play. Right. They didn't even play tennis. The woman who was Billie Jean's love interest, I thought, was adorable. Yes. But it's PG-13. It wasn't, it wasn't too bad. Were, the only other people in the theater, well, there was a couple in front of us, and then there was a mom with a little boy. Who he I'd wasn't say was little. He was like 13 or 14. 12 or 13, yeah. I'd say. Wow. No, and I'm just saying, if you're going to bring your kids, there is, there's physical lesbianism. Yes, but it wasn't. It, you don't see body parts no, or anything. No, it wasn't it, bad. I enjoyed it. Yes. I would recommend it. But yeah. I wanted more of different things. I don't want I wanted a documentary. I yes. think that's what I wanted. Well, that's, see, that's the problem I usually have with these kind of things. Yeah. I want a documentary. Yeah. I want a really well done documentary. I would have loved and also, as someone who felt the way we did back when this happened, I wanted more of the the real anxiety and desperation of young women 
Yes, that's why I think a documentary would have been good. But they did have one scene when the men's club, the guys in the men's club are watching it when she's winning and the waitress is standing behind them watching it. Smiling. Smiling. Because I think a lot of women But there are women, and as there still are, as we know, that jumped on board with the men. Because they know that if you, and they'll say they're doing it for themselves, and they are kind of, but you have a much more pleasant life if you agree with the men, and also, I think, and I think this goes right up to to people who had issues with Hillary, women who had issues with Hillary Clinton, is if women start achieving... It can upend your comfortable life because one of the issues, like one of the issues about the, expecting you to do right. It. Well, one of the issues with the ERA, and I can't believe people are still arguing about yeah, it in 2017, yeah. is that women won't be quote unquote allowed to be housewives oh, anymore. Geez. But the point is, all it says is you can't discriminate against people because I know. of sex, and you can be whatever you want to be. But I would just say, any of you young girls out there who are thinking of being housewives, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But you want to know how to make money, and you want to know how to to be financially independent. Because even if you have a happy marriage and don't get divorced, he could die or something. And you don't want to live a life where you depend on a man to live your life for you. And one of the problems with inequality in the workplace that we still have is it makes it very difficult. Not as difficult as it used to be, but very difficult for women to live an independent life without a man. And that's why you see women staying in abusive relationships. That's why you see women working menial jobs or not finishing college. Because we still live in a world that makes it difficult for a woman to achieve on her own. And thank God it's better. And I'm sure there's a lot of women who are younger generations than us who are kind of shaking their head and not knowing what we're talking about. And in a way, that's kind of good. Because it means that they're but not... don't take it for granted. That's right. The whole Never, thing. ever take it for and granted. And, like, I've, all, I've always been a feminist since I was... A, since since I was we were one. born. And I remember in college, I was in the 90s. I was older than... I went, and then I left, and then I went back. I, I had money problems in college. So I was about 10 years older than a lot of the students at one point. And I remember a couple girls talking some women's studies class. I used to take a lot of women's studies class because I liked them. And, but someone was talking about one of the professors. She was a feminist. She was from the old school feminism, and they didn't like her. I hate feminists. And I said, what do you think a feminist is? I mean, yeah. what's wrong with well, it? Right. They're causing a ruckus. They're making well, me feel uncomfortable. Since the beginning of men and women, women have learned it's easier on yourself in a lot of ways to agree and acquiesce and yes. get along with and nobody wants somebody stirring up trouble. Yeah, that's right. So, so on that note, yes, and that's our show for today. Yes. Next episode, I'm going to do the journalist in Europe who went on a ride in a guy's homemade submarine and ended up dead. Yes. And I wouldn't go probably... on a homemade submarine ride anyway, but I'm not a journalist. She didn't die from water leaking and put it that way. So if you want to email us, you can find most of our contact information at crimeandstuffonline.com, our website. We also have a Gmail address, crimeandstuff at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. If you just put Crime and Stuff in on Twitter, you'll find us. Yes, you will. And you can also find us on Instagram. Kind of. Kind of. We're still, there's just so much. It's hard to remember to put stuff on Instagram. I have a hard time with Instagram because, no offense, young women, but 
It's like you open it up and scroll down, it's and all it's like selfies. Like, really? How many pictures of yourself can you yeah. take? You're well, pretty, okay? You you're beautiful. You're pretty. You and look nice like in that outfit. Yep. And I want to thank the people who have rated and reviewed us on thank iTunes. Thank you so we appreciate much. It. We just got another good rating. Yeah, we and did. Thank you. And please share. If you know someone that'll like us, tell yeah, us about Yeah, tell your friends. Tell your friends. And join our Facebook page. Like, I mean, like. You have to like it. It's not yeah, a so you have, If you like what we're laying down, you can listen to our other podcast, Groovy Tube. The Crimes of the Brady Bunch. Yeah. You might want to watch the Brady Bunch, but you don't have to. You don't have to, because we describe the shows pretty well. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we give a pretty good synopsis yeah. of the show. I think until next time, that's See it. See ya. Hang on a minute. That's what okay. I get Nobody's upstairs, right? That's just... That's the cat. Either That's probably the cats. Probably like fucking elephants or a home invader. Well, there are guys working on the house next door, and I was flashing my boots at them earlier, uh, <laughs> just you know for the fun of it. So maybe they took it the wrong way and are mm, breaking Maybe they'll come in and we us. can do a different kind of podcast. Like Ew, gross. Oh uh, shit. Well, all you have to do is put it in thing. This freaking thing. Uh, I yeah, was, should I mansplain it to you? <laughs> yeah.